Hello, it's Joseph. I am uh, back. For those of you who were with me for a little quick fit and start of this live stream, my apologies for that. Uh, I think we're all broadcasting live now on all channels. Everything seems to be good. Um, what flustered me is that we normally have a guest and we normally schedule the guest and we we announced the guest and we promote it all during the week going into Thursday. This week, early in the week, we heard from Carmine Gallo, who was scheduled to be our guest, that he was unavailable today after all the unexpected circumstances and we're rescheduling him for a later time. So uh, we pivoted and, and I'm going to just answer questions today on the live stream. And I think in the process of that, we just had a different setup. So thank you for those of you who were patient enough to make the transition with me uh, today or for just joining me now a few minutes late on the on the live cast. All right, so I'm, I'm maintaining the time today that we normally meet together so that uh, we don't disrupt that in lieu of a, a, a not having a guest. And I said instead that my goal would be to just answer some questions. And so uh, I get lots of questions on LinkedIn. I get lots of questions in email. And this was my chance to, and, and in the comment section too, and you're certainly welcome to you know, to connect and give me a comment and I'll be glad to try to respond to that live in, in the context of our time today. But um, in any regard, I, I'm gonna answer a few questions that I get routinely. Just yesterday, for example, on LinkedIn, uh, someone reached out to me, they'd worked at the Ritz-Carlton, um, they had been involved around the time that I did the, the new gold standard and through the course of that interaction on LinkedIn, they had noted that they had had more time during the pandemic. And in that time, they'd gotten into some hobbies that recreated them, that nourished them, that they then took some insights from and started writing. And they started writing a business book uh, about the things that they were learning from this newfound activity. And so the question that was posed to me by that individual was, how do I go from, you know, starting to write to actually becoming a published author? And no sooner do I get that yesterday, I, I literally also got an email last night from a colleague who I worked with uh, in, uh, in Antigua uh, and Jumbi Bay. And she was actively you know, in the process of working on some writing projects as well. So uh, because I kind of think the universe tells you what you need to talk about, I'm gonna first start with that question. And I assume that if a couple of people yesterday have that in their heads, there's a lot of people who kind of have been thinking about the book that they have and then how do they take that book and get it published. Um, or maybe they haven't even gotten to the point of putting the book that's inside them onto paper. So my goal today is to kind of talk a little bit about that process. And I'd like to start by the, the very first step in this, which is the internal dialogue that it takes to become an author. There's several elements to this dialogue. One is just not believing that you're worthy, right? And I am that. I completely do not believe I am worthy to write a book. And I never did. I mean, I remember early on, when I first start, start thinking about writing, I, the first thought that came to my mind was, oh my gosh, you are not a writer, Michelli. I mean, seriously, uh, Thoreau was a writer. He woke up in the morning, he had to write, he had to write. And when he did, he wrote in these eloquent, buttery terms. And then people read it and they were transported to Walden Pond and they start thinking about life simplification. And it had huge impact on the way they viewed the world. That's a writer. Well, some 10 or 11 books later, I'm not sure if I'm a writer or not, but I certainly know that the voice that used to suppress my willingness to put words out has long since gone. <laughs> that editor is gone because in the now, I need to just produce ideas, get them onto paper. They can be edited out. They can be shaped and reshaped. But 
I got to get it out and I got to get the editor out of my head. So that's the first thing. If you have a book inside of you, start putting it on paper. I don't care how rough and crude and raw and non-organized it is, just get something going. So that would be the beginning point. And then once you start getting it out there, I do think you need to, to share parts of it with people. You might want to put little threads of it in your social media, see if people are reacting to it or not, if there's some interest. And I'm not just talking about sending it to your family because you know, it's kind of hard for your family to say that really was lame. So you, you kind of have to get a trusted set of advisors and or a community online and kind of put it out there a little bit to testing some concepts to see you know, what resonates. So beyond that, then you get to the really big decision point. And this is not an easy one. And this is, do you try to go the traditional publishing path, which is my path. I published for McGraw-Hill. All of the books that I've written, say one maybe uh, is a McGraw-Hill book. And um, I really am kind of in their stable, if you will. And it's a little easier now for me to pitch a book to McGraw-Hill than it might be from an outsider. But early on, you're trying to get either in a published, established traditional publishing house, or you're gonna try to go uh, direct publishing. So let's talk a little bit about what does that look like? Well, the first path is, in at least my experience, and this could be different for others, but for me, if you're gonna go traditional publishing, you probably need a, an agent. Um, at least for the last many years, agents are the broker between an author and the publishing house's editors. The agent can has established relationships. My agent, and she's not my agent anymore only because she retired and, and uh, I already established my own cadence with my, my publisher and I don't really need the, the agent to open the door anymore. But my agent was a former editor at McGraw-Hill, right? So she built her relationship when she pitched something to the editors at McGraw-Hill, there was a sense of trust. There was an understanding that she knew how to evaluate what was likely to be sellable and have impact versus bringing to the editors at McGraw-Hill something that you know was really wholly just a good idea, but not really gonna be something that was gonna be a commercial product. So getting an agent is important. Uh, and so how do you do that? Uh, and I'll even go so far to say in my day at least, um, you couldn't really just send an unsolicited manuscript to a, a publisher because I think they were worried about opening it and then someday being sued because they published something similar and you would say that it was a result of, of your original uh, intellectual property. So assuming you get an agent, how do you do it? Well, I often recommend look for books that are like the one you're about to write, the one you are your heart set on writing. And you know, try to find them and, and look in the acknowledgement sections to see who the author has identified as their agents. It's pretty standard of us to write in our acknowledgement section the people who helped us get the book to fruition. And so you'll see a lot of agent names in there. And that's a good way to get started at looking for agents who might understand your kind of book and who have a track record of having books like yours published. All right, so assume you pitch it to an agent, the agent's interested. The most likely thing the agent's gonna want from you is at least the outline of a book proposal. So what is a book proposal? In a very simple sense, the best book on what is a book proposal is written by a guy by the name of Larson. It's really catchy title here. Hold on, on, hold on to this one. How to write a book proposal. All right, so you might wanna check that book out. It's in its like 6,000th edition. It is uh, kind of the Bible for, for book proposals. In it, you know, my, my first book proposal was really one where I wrote the first chapter and the second chapter. And then I wrote summaries of all the additional chapters that were gonna be in the book. And the summaries of the additional chapters really were just like 
one sentence per per page. So if I imagine it was going to be a 20 page chapter, I'd write 20 sentences about chapter three and then 20 sentences if it was going to be a 20 page chapter about chapter four. And I would basically show the agent who ultimately is responsible showing the publisher that this isn't a pamphlet. It's not, you know, it's going to carry beyond a couple of pages. Uh, and each chapter is distinct and has substantial content available uh, so that you can build those out in time. But you don't have to write the entire thing. You have to get two really good chapters and some nice tight summaries of what could be expected thereafter. All right, so now your content has been communicated in your book proposal, but content and saleability of it are not the same thing. So now you're gonna have to go out and look for comparable works. And you're gonna have to try to identify what successful comparable works are out there so that A, you can say, hey, look, I'm writing into a category of books that have a great deal of success. There is a market, trust me, that there's a market. And then you have to basically say, of course, there are these books that already exist in that market and mine are similar in the following ways, but mine's gonna be different in this very, very important way. So you're gonna do a comparative analysis of successful books, you're going to identify the gap, the lane, the uniqueness of yours that will advance the, the book reading community by its communication. So let's assume you do all that. You may not know which books are successful. And so your, your agent will probably be a subscriber of something like Nielsen BookScan, which gives insider information on how which books really did sell well. Um, so the good news there is you identify some comparable works. Your agent typically would be able to go and look and see, uh, you know, you thought that was a success. It really didn't garner the kind of success that you thought. So without a doubt, we are, uh, you know, we're on this path to, to getting you down the road to this. Your agent pitches a book. You've got a comparative plan. You've got your, uh, you've got your first couple of chapters of content. You've got a summary of additional chapters. All right. So we're, we're there. And now it's just a matter of the agent pitching it, the publishing, the, the editor saying yes, and then the editor will advance it to what's normally called a pub publication board. And so this is a group of people at your, your uh, public publication house, um, and they will say, yes, we're going to invest in it or we're not. And then they'll give you a tentative offer. And uh, that's negotiable. Um, I'm personally kind of a fan of having a publishing agent at this point in time, of a publishing attorney at this point in time who can help you navigate. Uh, the reason I'm a fan of this is because publishers often provide a boilerplate offer and contract and an attorney can help you figure out what is negotiable. Some things are just not negotiable. They are the standards of the industry and you kind of have to take it or leave it. Other things you can negotiate. All right, so the offer is normally, what's your advance? How many words? How long do you have to produce it? Uh, and sometimes they'll give you a little indication of how much they might invest in marketing. Okay, you get the offer, you accept the offer, you bring your, your attorney in, you negotiate the details of the contract, you get the dot contract signed, you get your advance, you start writing, you deliver at various touch points across the publishing journey so that your editor is watching what you're doing, helping you revise it as it's taking form. And then it's time to, to have your manuscript accepted as deemed acceptable by the publisher. And once they deem acceptability of it, you might be do another installment of your, your advance. 
And then lo and behold, they'll publish it. You might get another installment of your advance. At that point in time, all these advances are advances against royalties, which means that when your book goes out into the marketplace, you're not going to get anything when it sells until you have exhausted the advance. So until that book sells itself out into a point where the money they've given you in advance has been recovered from the royalties, you're not going to get any, any money at that point in time. But once it does go past that, then you get your regular royalty schedule as negotiated in the contract. All right, enough of that. That's the traditional publishing route. Um, what's the other? Well, the other is obviously self-publishing. And in, in my early days, this was not such a good option. <laughs> not unless you had a lot of money and a lot of warehouse space. Because if you're going to self-publish, you're going to have to put a chunk of money in and they were going to go take the book that you created and they were going to go, you know, the self-publisher was going to go and bind it. And there's a lot of money involved in all that. And you're going to put that cash up front and then you get a whole truckload of books sent to you. And then you put them in your warehouse and you pray you can sell them because all that investment has to be returned. Now, the good news is what you get on the return is high, right? So every time you sell a copy, you're getting maybe 70%, let's say, of whatever you're listing that book to be. In a more traditional publishing world, it's going to be in that 10, 15% range. So if you sell the book for $30, you're going to get about $3 in a traditional publishing world. If you want to take all the risk on the front end and you're selling a book for $30, you know, you may be getting 21 back, but you know, it's you got to pay yourself back with that 21 for your initial investment before you ever start recouping. But the but the multiplier is much better. Now, obviously, you're going to have to be able to market your book. And so a major publisher should be able to do that for you a lot better and position it in all the important bookstores, whereas you're going to be at the mercy of your own marketing and distribution if you self-publish. All right. Assuming you have a great audience, assuming you have a, you know, a great community, you self-publish. Today, the initial investments are not anywhere like they used to be. And books don't even... You know, there, there are publish on demand options. So what happens is on an Amazon kind of option, as people order it, the book gets printed. And so you're not printing big print runs uh, that you have to foster. Plus, there's a digital transfer of these books. Some books never go to physical binding. They're completely digitized and people are buying the Kindle version of a book that doesn't have a physical manifestation. So, look, I'm never the guy to say which route to go. Um, I love being a traditional published author. It's been so amazing for me. I mean, it has been career shaping to have McGraw-Hill support my books, get them translated in multiple languages across the globe. It is huge. So I would never speak ill of that. It is the craziest, greatest thing. But I also have friends who have gone the other route, who've become very successful because they self-publish books, they had a message that people wanted to get. They knew how to get their audience to, to build an audience around their book. And then as they built the audience around their book, they created bigger communities that guided them on what the community wanted. And they kept providing books into that community. Oh my goodness, they've been successful. And so there isn't a one path. What there is, is the ability for us to communicate the spoken word into the written word in ways that touch people's lives and cause people to continue to seek out that input. So thank you for that. Thank you, Jolie, for your kindness of sharing that that information was relevant to you. I know Jolie is uh, connected to me on LinkedIn and is a 
an author in her own right. So uh, very kind of her to uh, to join the conversation today. All right, that's all I was going to say about becoming a published author. Author, I'm very eager and willing to talk more about that. Uh, if you, in your comments you want to you want to send me a comment with more detailed information specific to your situation, I'd be glad to do that. Uh, beyond the comments, if you want to send me an email, uh, it's Joseph at josephmichelli.com. I'll be glad to to connect with you through that. Obviously, uh, if we are not connected on LinkedIn, please uh, feel free to reach out to me. I'm glad to accept your connection request and we will have a dialogue through that channel. Um, so those would be uh, the way I would go with each of those things. All right, other topics that have come around for me of late um, and no particular order, it's just that people tend to ask me things like this with some frequency. So what, you know, because I do a lot with leadership, I often get asked, and what, what predicts success and what are the qualities of leadership that I think are, are the most significant or kind of the must-haves, particularly among you know, young leaders? Um, so when I get asked these questions, I always get excited because I care that people want to be better leaders, you know, that the world needs great leaders. Uh, we also need great followers. We need great challengers of leaders. Uh, all of that needs to happen. So let me start with the success drivers. Uh, for leadership. And, and I actually wrote a few of them down because I want to make sure I didn't get anything wrong here. So here, here's my cheat sheet. Um, resourcefulness. I think the, to be a successful person or a great leader, but mostly on the side of success, you have to be resourceful. You don't have to be brilliant. You don't have to be, you know, you, you have to be resourceful. You have to say, I may not know it now, but I'm going to find a way to know it. I may not have that skill yet, but I'm going to reach out to people who have that skill and I'm going to ask for help. I am resourceful, right? And that's much more resourceful than talented. Uh, so resourcefulness for me has always been one. Humility. Um, look, you can be a successful leader and not be humble. I think we've seen examples of that across our landscape. For me, the real leaders are humble. The real leaders are not above the people who follow them. They are from the people they follow them. They are among the people that follow them. In my new book, uh, Stronger Through Adversity, I actually talk about a concept of leaders being ahead, you know, alongside and behind their teams. And I actually take it from natural wild horse herds, right? So horse herds by nature in the wild have the alpha mare leading the pack, uh, kind of like, all of human civilization, right? The female leads the pack. Uh, and, in, and then you have horses that lead from the side, they are in the pack. And then you have the alpha sire in the back, kind of keeping the pace, keeping the pack moving at the pace of, of the alpha mare. And I talk a lot about that in Stronger Through Adversity as a leadership principle and concept, but, but fundamentally humility is what keeps you from realizing that any moment you need to move front, middle, back, right? I mean, it is an honor to be a leader and it is time bound. We are not leaders forever and we're given the mantle, the opportunity to lead. So if you're not humble about it and you think you're somehow better and that somehow you're, you're a gift uh, to the rest of the people, it tends not to work out well. And I think it's also not good for success. Uh, if you're not humble, people tend not to, you know, support you in your efforts to success. All right. Kindness. I uh, wrote kindness down and I, I am a fundamental believer 
that even if you disagree with people, there is absolutely no excuse for being unkind. Uh, there's just not. Um, and I'm sure there are moments in my career I've been unkind, but I, I can tell you from a success perspective, kindness wins. It doesn't win over the short term. There are definitely bullies who will kick you around and be unkind to you and they'll look like they're winning. And, uh, but in the end, when you need people to rally behind you, the kind tend to have colleagues. All right, uh, clarity of purpose, particularly on the leadership side, clarity of purpose. I mean, if you don't know why you're doing what you're doing and, and or if you're doing it from a pretty self-serving purpose, it tends not to work out well. So if you don't have a higher purpose, for why you have stepped up to lead or a higher purpose for why you're trying to drive success other than success itself and ego, it tends not to work out. And then finally, the last two, and I'll make them fairly quick here, is adaptability and authenticity. So adaptability, um, you know, in the book, Stronger Through Adversity, which will be out in December, uh, it's all about people who pivoted uh, as leaders to adapt to this crazy change that we all faced in COVID-19. And I am just inspired by leaders like that who talk about what they had to do to adapt, that they, they knew what was working was no longer going to be working. And they scoured the visual field and listened to people. And from that, they were able to chart a course to get through to the other side. If there is going to be another side of this thing, I'm certainly hopeful about that. And then authenticity, <sighs> you know, I've had enough fakey leaders in my day. I really have in my early, my early career. And again, think about this. I mean, my leadership career started in the eighties and in the eighties, our dominant style of leadership was pretty command and control. And, and those who of us who followed those leaders just knew our job was to fall into place. And it's been fabulous to watch authenticity and authentic leadership take rise from the eighties on and you get permission not to be perfect as the leader. You get permission to not just carry a mantle of authority, but to earn authority by virtue of being real. So no, that's just a couple of other little thoughts there. Uh, oh my gosh, look who's joining me. I almost had Carmine Gallo on. I've got to get Bill Lampton on. You know, Carmine Gallo, who I credit, is really analyzing the great communication style of leaders like, um, uh, like Steve Jobs. Bill Lampton creates these leaders. So uh, thank you, Bill, for joining me. Bill is the is the guru of communication when it comes to leadership. And uh, so we'll have him on. I'll just make a note to myself here because uh, he is he's just does remarkable work. So thanks for joining us today, Bill. All right, um, which gets me to the next question. Let's have a couple more, guys. Don't don't worry. I'm not going to go on and and pontificate here for very long. But I have a couple more uh, quick ideas. People ask me what inspires me and what is on my reading list. I get that asked a lot. Like, what do you read? I love when people ask that because that implies that people care about reading. And there are days as an author, you worry <laughs> that reading and particularly anything longer than a tweet, uh, reading is kind of uh, a little more challenging. But for me, it's very comforting. So um, inspiration, people like Bill Lampton are an inspiration to me. Uh, other people who inspire me, mostly the people I try to get on the show are inspirations for me. So, um, you know, I had Dickie Smothers on not too long ago, the Smothers Brothers. He was an inspiration because he and his brother fought authority, stayed true to their muse, were clean and creative. They were those challengers that I mentioned earlier. Um, and yet he's so incredibly humble and phenomenally sensitive 
Um, and a flawed person who admits his flaws and teaches us how to learn from them. And in his 80s is living the best years of his life. Uh, so that's an inspiration. So anybody I put on here, you know, the horse Schultzes of the world who've been mentors of mine, uh, we've got uh, scheduled. We're not sure if we're going to be doing him as a live cast or as a uh, podcast, but uh, we've got Guy Kawasaki who will be joining us. Uh, Guy has just been an inspiration to me forever. Uh, he's a Mercedes-Benz evangelist, kind of he, just incredible chops back at Apple. And uh, anyway, just the people I get on here tend to be uh, my inspirations. And I'm really fortunate to be able to know a lot of people who inspire me and who are kind enough to participate in my work, including the new book. We have 140 of those kind of inspirational people who said yes to the book. And they're the CEOs of Kohl's, uh, Michelle Gass, or they're the CEO of Target, Brian Cornell, or the CEO of Verizon, uh, Hans Vestberg. These are all people who were kind enough to participate in the upcoming book, Stronger Through Adversity. Should I pop that up somewhere? I don't even know. Do I have a, I think I may have a, a little, a little visual of the upcoming book. I have to get to one side or the other. I always go on the wrong side. Here it is. Stronger Through Adversity. So that'll be coming up pretty soon. Um, as for my reading list. Um, oh, so my, one of my favorite books I read not too, too long ago, it's been out for a while, but it's uh, Dave Vondrely's book. I know, I know Dave, Whew. We were in the same independent writing class at the University of Denver, Professor Stevenson's class, if I remember correctly. It was independent writing. So this is, you know, there's only two of us in this class. It was Dave Andrelli and I. And Dave and I would be assigned each week by Professor Stevenson to go and view a scene together. We had to go together and see it. And then we'd have to write it in the style of. So maybe one week we'd write it in the style of Time Magazine. The next week we'd write it in the style of The New Yorker. Very different audiences, very different voice. And so we were in this independent uh, writing class. And I was very psychologically minded and not all that great of a writer, right? Not all that eloquent. Dave Andrelli could take the most mundane thing from a psychological perspective, but he could write he could write it to no end, right? So, so one of my favorite books of a recent vintage was one that Dave wrote called Rise to Greatness. And uh, it was about 1862, one year in the life of Abraham Lincoln, uh, the most perilous year in the history of our country uh, to date. And oh my goodness, the way he writes. So let me go back. So imagine, I'll give you a scene from the days when we were in independent writing together. We went into a arcade, but Dave and I did. And um, we were watching people in the arcade and we wrote our thing in the style of the New Yorker, let's say. And then we brought it back and we we shared it with our professor and he read both of ours. And then he, he shared them with each of us and we kind of evaluated each other's work. So Dave goes into the arcade with me and he watches what I think is just a mundane transaction like just i don't even know what he saw it was like like somebody putting money in a in a money exchange machine for coins cash for coins and and he wrote about that and i thought like there's no story there but i was totally enthralled i however had an incredible observation i saw this man with one of those coin purses that you squeeze and he took his coin out and he put it into 
the pinball machine. He's an old man and he puts it in the pinball machine and he becomes transfixed and you can almost feel him age regress into his youth. Yeah, great psychological scene. I caught it. I would much rather read Dave Von Grayley's description of somebody just putting, you know, a dollar bill in a change machine than my effort to try to capture the psychological transformation of the older man. They just, Dave's amazing. So I'd strongly encourage you to read The Rise to Greatness by Dave Andrelli, um, if and when you have a chance. The other two books I was going to mention really quickly is Man's Search for Meaning. I read it every few years. Um, you know, this is obviously Viktor Frankl's book, a psychiatrist, the founder of Logotherapy. He, um, he just captures the adaptability of the human spirit that book to me is the Bible and understanding that humans are capable of amazing things, even in the face of the greatest adversity. So uh, clearly and strongly recommend that you take a look at Man's Search for Meaning with Viktor Frankl. If you haven't read it before, uh, I think it's eye opening. My favorite line in the book, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing it. He doesn't say it this way at all. But um, in essence, what he's describing is the following. There is a point in the concentration camp life, because the whole book is about Viktor Frankl's internment in a concentration camp in World War II and how people psychologically approached life in the concentration camp and how they adapted. So there's a moment in there where he basically says, all of us were starving. We're all starving. And some people were near death from starvation and others were not as close. And some of the people who were not as close gave a portion of what they had, despite starving, a portion of the food they were given to the people who were near death. Now, in the next sentence or so, Frankel says, not many people did that. Most people just ate what they could. You know, gosh, got to survive myself. But the fact that some people did give of themselves in that time to those less fortunate. The fact that some did meant that humans could. And for me, that's like the stuff that I live for. Like, you know, wow, what are we capable of as humans? And are we living to our fullest self? All right, that's that. One more book, uh, just quickly, The Story of Civilization by Will and Ariel Durant. This is not a book. This is a compilation series of about 11 or so books. Uh, Will and Ariel Grant, uh, historians, who took on the job of pretty much their lifetime uh, to tell the entire history of civilization from the birth of civilization through the, you know, through each of the periods, the epics of our time, uh, Eastern influences, the Renaissance, all of that, the modern age. Um, what is remarkable is that anybody would take this on. Um, and for those of us who felt like our history, uh, our, our, our grade school history was a little impoverished, at least mine was. Uh, this helps me get grounded that we are on the shoulders of giants, as Isaac Newton would say. Um, and not only that, these guys can write. I mean, they're, they're deceased now, but both Ariel and Will could write. They can take a concept in history and make it read like a novel. So uh, strongly encourage that. I read that every so many years as well, just to remind myself of how we got to be a civilized world and what it takes, what we give up. So we give up freedom to live in civilization because in part, if we don't live in a civilized world, we're at more risk than if we were fully free. 
I mean, that's like my take on their book. And what freedoms are you willing to give up in order to live in a civilized society? Because the greater good is served by being civilized than living in an uncivilized, irresponsible way. So just a helpful thing for me. And it, its relevance appears over and over again in the course of history. All right. So my last thing is that people frequently say on one of your one of your uh, recent live streams, you talked about giving away books. And are you still giving away any books? And if so, what books are you giving away? And what do we need to do to get your book uh, free? Uh, so here's the answer. Yes, I'll give away books. Um, we will send out books uh, to you, uh, to, to a handful of people. Uh, if you retweet, uh, excuse me, repost this live cast uh, in your stream, uh, just we'll be able to tell that you did that hashtag it, you know, in any kind of way. But we'll we'll see when this particular broadcast gets uh, reposted. It could be reposted on Facebook. It could be reposted on LinkedIn you know, YouTube, any channel, just, and, and if we miss it, let us know, uh, and we'll send you a copy. Uh, and, you know, we, we've got a couple of cop. we've got Airbnb books we can give you, we can give you leading the Starbucks way books. We've got extras of all of that, that we'd be glad to share with you. So, um, yeah, just try to get the word out. And if you don't do this one and you want to go back and repost one of the ones we've done before, that's fine. Cause this is a very unusual one. Normally we have some cool guests on, but, um, if you repost, say, one we did with Ed Mady, the you know the general manager of the Beverly Hills Hotel, which was a, a recent post, or Ellen Rohr, who just is a great business development specialist and a franchise expert, um, or any number of the other guests that we've had on, Horst Schultze, my mentor, Dickie Smothers, and uh, I'm forgetting you know others right now um, who have been so kind to give their time. Uh, Barbie Winterbottom, for example, get, teaching us about kind of consultative HR and the importance of becoming a true HR officer. Kim Crowder, who joined us regarding diversity and inclusion. Any of those, if you repost them, just let us know and we'll get your contact information and we'll ship you out a signed copy of the book in gratitude and signed, kind, signed copy of one of the books, Airbnb Way or Leading the, uh, Leading the Starbucks Way. Uh, in appreciation for your support of this. So there are some guests coming up. Um, I should pop that up so you know what's happening there uh, in upcoming shows. Um, if you call these a shows, I don't even know what you refer to this stuff as. Anyway, in upcoming episodes, we will uh, we'll be doing that. Oh, look at this. Look at this. This is somebody who this is a business uh, developer. She has done so many incredible business projects. Uh, she is, I want to say Danish. I'm probably wrong about that. But um, she is the style guru of all time. She's an entrepreneur. She gets involved in all kinds of things. So thank you for being willing to repost uh, my ideas, Vasca. I'm in uh, gratitude for your willingness to join on. All right. So um, as I was wrapping up, I was just going to tell you who it was that's going to be on upcoming episodes of this. So, you know, we originally said Carmine was going to be here today. And there's one of Carmine's books, The Apple Experience. And as I noted, he had another commitment come up, but we are rescheduling him. So fear not. Next week, Craig LaMasters is going to be on. So uh, Craig is the author of that book on the lower corner there called Unstuck. And don't you think that's like one of the coolest book covers that's 3D and the 
butterfly is, you know, comes out and you can see the red underneath. I just think it's awesome. Cool. But it's, it's about getting unstuck. So kind of some of that stuff we talked about earlier about unsticking your writing and getting into the writing flow. Uh, Craig can, can take that on. And then, oh my gosh, talk about inspirations. Um, I'll remove that for a second. Yeah. From an inspirational perspective, it doesn't get too much better than Howard Bihar. You can see his book. It's not about the coffee. So I have Howard in my new book, Stronger Through Adversity. And I probably mentioned this before, but it's so important to me to share who he is so you can get excited about him in a couple of weeks. Howard is part of the founding brain thrust behind Starbucks. And he was at Starbucks through the very early days he and two other people. And we lovingly refer to the founders of Starbucks as H2O. Two Howards, that's the two H's, and the O, Oren Smith. The other Howard you might have heard of, you know, uh, Howard Schultz. Uh, so Howard Schultz, who stayed on as the CEO, chief global officer, but Howard Bihar, who was the soul and the heart of the brand. In his uh, story that he shares in Stronger Through Adversity, he talks about the ultimate in leadership uh, vulnerability. He is my favorite authentic leader, probably. He's just charming. Uh, and I can't wait. And, and he's very, he's just who he is. So I can't wait for you to meet him, uh, Howard Bihar, in a couple of weeks. So Craig Masters next week, Howard Bihar the week after that. Please repost either this show or one of my old shows out there in the universe. I am in your debt. Um, and we'll be sending out some books to the people who do that. Otherwise, be safe. If you have other questions, feel free to write them to me, connect with me on LinkedIn, and uh, we'll address those in some future show when a guest has a, a conflict. We'll, we'll make lemons, uh, we'll, we'll make lemonade out of lemons, not lemonade, lemons out of nothing. All right. So we'll make lemonade out of lemons. Uh, well, one more comment before I go. Okay. Can't wait for upcoming guest speakers. Thanks, Vasca. All right, everyone. Have a great week. I'll see you right here, 1230. We have a date. 12.30 on Thursday. Looking forward to it. Thank you so much for the kindness and the gift, the greatest gift of all, your time. Mm -hmm.